Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Frederick Pohl, science fiction writer, and Elizabeth Ann Hall, professor of English at W.R. Harper College, discuss the joys and difficulties of teaching science fiction. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Okay, Betty Ann, I first met you at a World Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City, and I never asked you what a nice kid like you was doing in a place like this. How'd you get involved? Well, I had been teaching science fiction for three years at that point, and I had had students who had been to world cons, and I hadn't. And so I convinced my dean that for credibility's sake, I needed to go to a world con, even though it came right at the beginning of the semester, and I had to miss a couple of days of the first week of classes. So um, I was there on a purely academic What made mission. you wanted to teach science fiction? Well, I had been um, a closet fan. Actually, I, I think I might qualify for second fandom because I was um, active um, in 1948, I believe, when I was on the radio in WISN up in Milwaukee. In, uh, and you were then 11 books. years old. Yeah, junior great books discussion of um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We were given a lot of books to read that year, but that's the only one that I actually remember. And um, I'd been a, a reader of science fiction since childhood, and um, I guess sort of a, a semi-active fan in the Chicago area. So you've read a lot of science fiction? Right. Who are the writers you really care present company accepted, who are the writers you really care about? Well, the ones that I teach in my science fiction class are um, Le Guin, um, Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, Pohl, of course, um, a whole bunch from the Science Fiction Hall of Fame uh, to give the students a kind of an overview of the development of science fiction. And leading up to modern times, I rotate new books in all the time as I can. Have all the students that you get known anything about science fiction? Or? Some have been. As I said, I had one fan the first year I taught who had just come back from um, Torcon II. And uh, we had quite a, a debate because I suggested that for their independent projects, the students could um, choose from a list of writers. and I told a little bit about each writer as I knew. And I mentioned Samuel R. Delaney as uh, someone who might be interested in writing about a black writer and upshot the hand of Don Vanny. And he said, oh, he's not black. I just saw him at Torcon too. And I said, oh, but I think he is. And I was reluctant to well, confront. He always had been up until that point anyway. Well, but he's so light-skinned that um. Don saw him and didn't see any color. And um, I had to go and check with friends. Uh, am I wrong? You know, have I been mistaken all this time? And it uh, was quite uh, disconcerting. So I actually, I had to go to that first world con in Kansas City, where Heinlein was the guest of honor, if you remember. Did you meet him then? Yes, I did. I had just finished an article about his, uh, his work, his sermons particularly in his works. and. Uh, and you had to give blood in order to get to meet him in the autograph line. And Did I mean, you? I, I remember 
yeah. No, I didn't give blood. I worked on the blood drive because um, delicate, frail creature that I am, uh, they had sometime earlier than that prevented me from ever giving blood again because I... Because you didn't have enough to go around as it was. I was too much trouble yeah. uh, fainting afterwards. But um, Heinlein accepted that I had worked on the blood drive. And when he saw me, we had had some correspondence back and forth. And um, I had sent him a draft of the paper that was going to be published in Extrapolation. And he... Um, Did he like it? Well, he took a little bit of uh, umbrage at something I said. I think I had said something or other about his prudishness. And uh, when he saw me, he squared me off. And he said, you're the one who thinks that I'm a prude. I'd like to talk to you later. And unfortunately, we never actually did get to talk because I was riding with some other people from Kansas City, and it was a 10-hour drive, and we had to leave before the time. But we did get to talk later on. We did, yeah. I remember you and I were with Bob when he got his honorary doctorate in Michigan, and we spent some time sitting around his hotel room, and I don't remember what we talked about. but. Uh, well, I've always felt that um, Heinlein is unjustly accused of being a lot of things that he isn't. Um, although I thought my, uh, I don't know why I'd call it an accusation, but my um, description of his um, reserve in matters sexual, I think, is probably accurate. And he was doing that because he was trying to appeal to a general audience. He thought things shouldn't be too explicit, and I don't quarrel with that. I think uh, readers' imagination can fill in the the parts that um, he leaves unsaid. But um, the the thing that I think he's always been um, maligned about is the thought experiments that he tried. And um, I've heard you say that um, there are uh, celebratory and cautionary science fiction. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure exactly where books like Starship Troopers should come in there. Um, a lot of science fiction is designed to celebrate the way the world might be. But a thought experiment showing the way the world might be could also be cautionary. And um, <coughs> not certainly. Uh, that it's, I think you once called uh, a sermon. Uh, Bob was uh, greatly given to telling people what ways they could follow to improve themselves. He does implant a lot of sermons in, in uh, a book like Starship Troopers. Mm. But it's also a first-person narrative. And the first-person narrative allows the reader to decide whether or not to accept what the um, narrator is saying. It's, it's not in the authorial voice. And it's not lecturing in the third person, but it's that character's opinion. And I think he does that most successfully in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, he, on the very first page, he sets up some doubts in the reader's mind about how much you can trust um, Manny when he confuses uh, which Watson was associated with uh, Conan Doyle and which one with IBM. And so you know that you can't trust him for everything, and therefore I think that challenges the reader to decide for himself. And in Grumbles from the Grave, that's what Heinlein said he was trying to do, 
is get people to um, understand that there are questions and ask their own questions, not give them the answers. I think The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is probably the best novel Heinlein ever wrote. I ran it as a serial, so I was one of the first people privileged to read it. And uh, Bob had written a few novels before that that I thought were below his standard, and I wondered if the old man wasn't losing his powers, but he never did better at any time than that. And it was, it was the hero talking in his own voice that made it a wonderful book. Bob was describing what I think was his personal utopia on the moon in the novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where although he was a prude, people were living sexual lives which were certainly not conventional. He had this concept of the line marriage where a man and a woman get married and a little later on they meet somebody else so they don't divorce and marry this other person. They just add this other person to the marriage until they may have 30 or 40 people who are all married to each other. And the politics of uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, I think, were his ideal sort of a free-form anarchy where nobody really had a law to tell them what to do, but they knew that if they annoyed too many people with what they do, they would be in trouble. So people tried to live, peaceable, live peaceably with each other. But then, I guess something happened to Bob toward the end of his life, because in one of the last novels, he revisited that scene and trashed it. It had all fallen apart. It hadn't worked out. Well, I, I don't think that at any point he was committed to, this is my credo for life, and I'm, I'm not going to give it up. It's one of the things that I think um, is characteristic of a, of a good, great mind rather than a good mind. He certainly had a good mind, and I think he may have had a great mind in that he kept open his options for um, development in um, To Sail Beyond the Sunset. Uh, he, people who want to criticize his politics should revisit that and see um, some of the revisionist um, well, I, answers I, that he made yeah. to critics of, of earlier books. Well, I think that Bob's politics were highly individualistic and fairly flexible. I don't think he wanted to impose his idea of how the world could be run on anybody else. But in a sense, I think that was his politics that he didn't want people to have their rules for their lives imposed on them by government or by anybody else. I'm not quite sure how that could have worked out in practice. But well, it's fun to play the thought experiment. In defense of the critics who have called him uh, anti-feminist, uh, largely based on books like Podcane of Mars, where Podcane is a very bright girl. She has a, an IQ of 130 or so and she wants to be a space pilot. But her younger brother, Clark, has an IQ of 145. And uh, at the end of the book, Podkeen decides, well, she won't be a space pilot. She maybe marry a space pilot. Um, in, in defense of Heinlein, Mary Kenny Bandami said um, at one of the SFRA meetings, he was doing women in the 40s and 50s, he was creating women who were doing things, who were not just passive uh, victims to be rescued mm -hmm. or plot elements. Um, they were actually 
people who, who moved the plot. And um, there were a few others that were doing it, maybe Ted Sturgeon and uh, um, John Wyndham and, and, you know, yeah. half a dozen others. Frederick Pohl, for instance, in 1953 published a novel in which the uh, wife of Mitchell Courtney kept her own name. And I love to Not quote unlike that one. the wife of Frederick Pohl. Yeah. Well, I, I've always been a closet feminist. I just didn't admit it until recently. You mentioned the SFRA, the Science Fiction Research Association, of which you were president for a while. I don't know if I, I guess I must have told you with what shock and horror I realized there was a thing called the Science Fiction Research Association, which was academics studying what science fiction was all about all those things. Uh, and I had always felt until then that if the academics got their hands on science fiction, they would turn it into something that I wouldn't recognize anymore. I sort of felt that if uh, you wanted to discourage people from writing science fiction, from reading science fiction, you could make it a compulsory course in school and then they would never do it again as long as they lived. But uh, how do you think it's worked out? What do you think SFRA well, has done? I think that uh, SFRA has um, worked for a long time to try and make science fiction or the study of science fiction an academically respectable discipline, and um, and I'm all for that. Um, I've sort of devoted my career to trying to make it an academically justifiable discipline. Uh, I really think that um, if people are going to, it's a literature that people are going to read anyway. And if people are going to read, go into the local bookstore or the library to pick out a book, they should have some guidance in how to choose the better stuff. And um, you, you were the first in your college to teach science fiction. I, and you had a little trouble getting it uh, approved. Yeah, I certainly worked for a long time on um, Actually, after I got a five-year process of getting the course uh, approved, um, I helped other people in the state to do the same process by following the steps that I went through. But it was largely uh, politicizing other members of my English department, which was the easiest part because even though they thought science fiction was something they would never want to read, if it brought in bodies and filled up a class, in fact, overfilled the class, that might allow a, a, another literature class that was in shaky condition to live because the averages would would. Uh, so sustain. if you got enough people in science fiction, somebody else could teach Beowulf. So, well, not quite Beowulf, but maybe a poetry class that might not mm -hmm. live otherwise. Anyway, um, the um, all-school committee uh, was the hardest to convince, even though we have many people on our campus in other disciplines, particularly in the social sciences and a few in the sciences, who are fans, closet fans. They don't go to conventions. They simply read a lot of science fiction. Uh, they still had a lot of uh, apprehensions about, you know, it, is there a serious body of scholarship here? Um, and so that was uh, part of what I had to convince people and, and over the years we've been building this body of reference work and scholarship um, 
and we do the same things that critics in other fields do. Uh, some of them will publish a, an article. Um, Dave Samuelson published an article on Arthur C. Clarke, which was called um, Childhood's End, A Median Stage of Adolescence. And I was so infuriated by that that I wrote um, my article on Clarke called Fire and Ice, where I did an Aristotelian defense of Clarke's childhood, Childhood's End. And um, I, you know, that sort of dialogue um, among scholars is extremely important to uh, promote um, a respectability in that we take it seriously. And that doesn't mean solemnly. That doesn't mean that we have to be stuffy and pompous and some of the other things that um, literary critics are accused of. Uh, in fact, I like to avoid Latinate words and, and Greek words and, and other kinds of jargon. I have tried to stay away from semiotics and deconstructionism and all the other uh, fad of the month kinds of criticism and just um, elaborate and interpret the books that I love and tell why I love them. I don't think that we should be devoting a lot of time to trashing books and tell why they're no good because there are just too many good ones that, that should be supported. Um, well, I think the first uh, critic that uh, I'm familiar with who had anything major to say about science fiction and came from outside the field was Kingsley Amos or New Maps of Hell. As he later was Sir Kingsley Amos in his book New Maps of Hell. And he had a point of view. His idea was that science fiction was worth <coughs> paying attention to because it told you what sort of horrors you ought to avoid. The cautionary The literature. cautionary stories what he called the comic infernos, the satirical science fiction stories about a really dreadful future. He really loved your work, And too. he really loved my work. Well, that was one of the reasons I took him more seriously than most, maybe. But uh, you don't have a point of view like that. You're not saying one kind of science fiction is better than another. Well, um, to a certain extent, I agree with Sir Kingsley in that I like to read um, that dark satirical literature. But um, in the interest of providing a sophomore survey, I teach a whole range of courses, a whole range of, of styles. Uh, I think I forgot to mention that I teach Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Cat's Cradle in among that. So that's, um, to me, the height of, of uh, science fiction satire. Um, How about the uh, kinds of science fiction that most people are familiar with, like uh, Star Trek and Star Wars? You don't teach them at all. No, I don't. And if I have a student who wants to make a report on one of those books, um, I try to guide them away it from that to something that's um, more original. But if they insist on it, I let them uh, go through the process of analysis that I want all the students to do on their independent reading. and. Um, Many of them come to similar kinds of conclusions that uh, this is a, a limited audience and has a limited um, literary payoff. And by literary payoff, I mean some thematic insight that will stay with you long after you've forgotten the names of the characters or the 
particular details of the plot, um, you're, you're struck with this kind of feeling that the thematic insight has changed you in some way. And I think you don't get that from a Star yeah, Trek I, or a Star, Star Wars. I think that's one of the things that attracted me to science fiction in the first place, that it's interactive. The reader, to get what's there, needs to work almost as hard as a writer to try to understand what's going on. And really then to go on and write his own stories in his mind afterward, once the writer has planted a seed and suggested a certain possible turn of events or possible situation, then the reader says, hey, maybe that's not the way it could be. Maybe it could be this other way. I think that's how fans become writers. They, in their minds, rewrite stories they've read and then decide to put them on paper. You've called the fan the larval form of the writer. Well, the fan is the larval form of the science fiction writer. Yes, it's true. Most of the science fiction writers I know began as fans, and quite often at a very early age. I began reading science fiction when I was 10 or so and began trying to write it when I was 12. Isaac Asimov was a slow developer. He didn't start till he was almost 13. But uh, <coughs> I think that that is uh, the way it happened. I'm going to talk about one particular uppity fan, Harlan Ellison, <coughs> you watched develop. Yeah, Harlan Ellison is very uppity and uh, started as a fan. Well, he's now 60 years old and still uppity. Uh, he's one of the kinds of science fiction writers that uh, could not exist, <coughs> I think, outside of the science fiction field because he um, the things he wanted to say were basically science fiction, but does not want to be limited by the science fiction field either. He doesn't want to write about spaceships and voyages to Mars and that. Um, and so sometimes he tries to avoid being called a science fiction writer. Uh, I'm, I wonder sometimes, he especially hates being called a sci-fi writer, which I, makes me wonder sometimes how he reconciles his life with the amount of time he spends on the sci-fi network. But then um, I wonder how a lot of people reconcile their lives. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the things that um, I tell my students, that um, true fans, spelled T-R-U-F-A-N-S, are um, much more likely to call the genre SF, or science fiction, than sci-fi. Or skiffy. Well, skiffy is a pejorative term, uh, a deliberate mispronunciation for not just media, which is what I think of as sci-fi, television and film, but um, for the really bad bottom of the pits uh, kind of stuff. That's truly well, skiffy. A lot of what I think is think of as the bottom of the pits is not really illiterate or badly constructed. It simply doesn't say anything that I think is worth saying has nothing to add to the body of science fiction that already exists. And a lot of that, I think, is derivative of the skiffy of the science fiction film and television industry. There are the uh, Star Trek books and the Star Wars books and all the related books that are tied into some media event. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the originals. <clears throat> there are things you can do in film that you can't do in print. You can't get that shock to the senses in print that you get from seeing a 
all those bugs with all, nothing to eat all in those the bugs starship in the starship troopers which with as you point out nothing to eat uh, but I don't think I don't, they are amazing but I don't want that as much as I want the other things but but one of the things that we noticed or I noticed while I was watching that was if the battles go on too long because you shouldn't have time to think about what do those bugs eat <laughs> you know and nothing is really happening while the battle is going on um, there's something about the rate of revelation that's important and you should be discovering something new about the characters or about their situation and while the battle is going on it's sort of like on hold we're yeah. talking about starship troopers yeah. and moving. Well, there, there have been other notable ones where I've fallen asleep in um, <laughs> Superman. I think maybe the Ice Palace hypnotized me. Do you remember when we saw the um, Isaac Asimov story? Uh, oh, that was the that was the bottom of the pits. That was Skiffy. Nightfall. Nightfall. It was as if someone had um, discovered that by an acquisition of a corporation, he now owned the rights to Nightfall and said, hmm, this is a well-known story. Let's make a movie out of it. And called up some writers and said, here, here's this short story. We own it. We want a script. And the writers, after reading it, said, there's nothing here to make a feature-length script out of. This will be a 15-minute episode. Maybe, maybe we could stretch it to a half an hour for uh, a Twilight Zone, but we can't make a a feature-length movie out of this, and he said, just throw in some sex and violence, and that's what they did. Uh, all of which would have appalled Isaac. Oh, did appall Isaac. He uh, kept telling people he had nothing to do with the film until his death. Isaac was a very kind gentleman. I wrote a couple of um, articles on his work, one on what I think was his best work, um, the gods themselves, and another that I was commissioned to do and probably wouldn't have thought of to do otherwise on Heinlein juveniles. And in many ways, I thought um, they were dated, especially the Lucky Star books. But in other ways, I was amazed. Those the Asimov juveniles. Yes. You said Heinlein juveniles. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was amazed at how well they held up because um, Heinlein Juvenile is almost a one word, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. But the Lucky Star books, um, what I did notice was there was not a, a grammatically incorrect sentence in any of them. So he was a writing model for any young readers. And um, the thing that tickled me the most was whenever anybody smoked, whether it was a pipe or a cigarette or a cigar, you knew that person was going to turn out to be the villain. <laughs> and this was years, years before the crusade to have a smoke-free society in America. I, I was uh, Isaac's agent for a while, literary agent. At the time he began writing the juveniles, um, and I know that he <clears throat> did very well with them, they are pretty well respected, respected, but I never could make myself read them. Uh, were they that, were, was there anything in them other than a little adventure? I think they were mostly adventure, and they're uneven. Um, but I think for kids in fourth or fifth grade, um, things that might bore me because I'm not a beginning reader might be exciting to a young reader. And I think they are being rediscovered. Um, I think 
Isaac had an idea of what he wanted to do in writing for young readers, and that was to create a, a world where there were possibilities and things could be changed and and good people would come to good ends if they worked hard and were diligent and and um, didn't dissipate their their talents. And those are all good messages, all good subtexts under the adventure. Um, Isaac was a smart man in his um, final autobiography. He wrote three huge books. One was um, uh, in Memory Yet Green, and the second one was in Joy Still Felt, but the one that I think is most readable and, and most interesting is I, Asimov. And in that, in his little chapter devoted to Frederick Pohl, he says something I'm paraphrasing, like, um, Fred and I have never seriously disagreed on anything. Well, maybe once or twice, but any time that I went and thought it over, I could see that Fred was right and I was Isaac wrong. Was very perceptive. That was, yeah. Well, that was such a gracious thing to yeah. say. Yeah. Well, yes, he was gracious and he was perceptive and he was really smart. I don't know what his IQ was. Uh, it was measured at 160 plus, and they didn't know how much plus. Uh, but then, I think he deserved a higher rating than that. Well, you and he collaborated shortly before he died on a book that I think is really good for <clears throat> juvenile readers. Uh, it's not a juvenile, but uh, certainly young readers and even young adults. I Talking think, about Our Angry Earth. Our Angry Earth. Nonfiction book about the uh, ecology. When uh, Isaac and I first talked about writing the book, uh, I said something about the fact we won't have to do a lot of research because between the two of us we already know all this stuff. And he said, yes, uh, I think so. And I'm not sure I need you in that connection either. Uh, Isaac was not modest about how much he knew. Then unfortunately, if you remember, we were having dinner with Isaac and Janet uh, to celebrate the fact that we were going to write the book. And Isaac, uh, at the end of the meal, got up and said, I think I have a case of flu coming on and he went home and he went to bed and then he went to the hospital and uh, that was the beginning of the illnesses that finally killed him a year or so later. So he didn't get to write as much of the book as I had hoped. The last few years of his life, last year or so of his life, I remember we went to visit him and he was he said he spent most of his time sitting on the couch and staring into space. Cause he and really he was, was still well. more productive in those years when he wasn't <laughs> writing than many writers are when they're well, being their most productive. Well, he was a man with a physical addiction to typewriter keyboards. Now, it takes one to know one, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yes, I suppose. The, the whole idea of writing for juveniles interests me and the idea of entry-level SF. Um, you and I and Charles Brown have had some discussion about how there are so few writers who are writing for people who don't know all the tropes and all the conventions and all the the um, the things that longtime readers assume. Um, it, it's difficult to say what exactly makes a story, a juvenile. Ben Bova said he wrote exactly the same for both adults and children, except for he left the sex out. 
But well, I think probably he did one other thing, which is to make his protagonist a teenager, mm -hmm. which was the Heinlein treatment. Mm -hmm. But but I don't think that it's necessarily um, the the same kind of story that will appeal to a um, young reader as will appeal to an adult. Um, for readers who, for people who are, say, 15 and younger, um, they haven't had the life experience that adults have had. And uh -huh. you say you, you always try to reflect the complexity of human personality. Um, that can be very confusing for um, well, a, a, an unsophisticated person. See, I know it can, and I, I understand that that is the conventional wisdom, but I have always felt that what I need to do in a story is to assume that my reader can understand anything I can understand, but doesn't know anything at all. That's technologically, I think, a good thing to assume, but I'm not sure that humanly it is. Uh, we've had some talks with um, Verna Smith about Doc Smith's writing his space operas and, and everything being so neat in those. And I know Doc was one of your, your uh, idols. He was an early idol, yes. Um, but, but not in that way. Um, well, I never wanted to write like Doc Smith. I never wanted to be Doc you Smith. You did write one story. I wrote one story on, Doc's on, typewriter. on his typewriter. Yeah. After, after Doc died and we were visiting Verna, she had his typewriter, and I but, saw that. Oh, can I write a story on that? And it just came out a Doc Smith story. It came out a Doc was Smith story. Was that like collaborating with Doc? Well, it was. Um, it was a, no, a vaudeville trick more than anything else. I mean, I knew what was happening, and I was making it happen. Why don't you talk a little bit about all the different ways in which you've collaborated with people? You and I collaborate different from any way that you've collaborated with anyone else that I know of. We, we write sort of back and forth dialogue mm. because both of us are too pig-headed to let the other one edit. <laughs> well, also, we want to stay married, so we don't do that. But uh, I've written with, with Cheryl Cornbluth. Uh, we devised a scheme. Uh, I don't know how it came about, which was that <clears throat> Cyril would come out to the house I was living in in New Jersey where I kept a room for him on the third floor with his own bed and his own typewriter. And he and I would sit around and talk for a while about what kind of book we might want to write. <coughs> and then uh, we'd flip a coin and whoever lost would go up on the third floor and write the first four pages. And then he'd come down and say to the next one, you're on, and that person would write the next four pages. And we'd do that, turn it about until we had a book written. And at the end of that time, we had a rough draft, which was going to need a lot of editing and revision and making those pieces fit together, but was complete structurally, it was all there. <coughs> I've tried that with other writers, and it doesn't work. I tried it with my friend Lester Del Rey, and we wrote one book together, which almost destroyed a 20-year friendship, because his method of writing was so unlike mine that we just never could agree. And with Jack Williamson, basically we spend a lot of time corresponding back and forth about what might go into a book. And because he is such a nice man, he writes the first draft and then he gives it to me to uh, finish up. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, 
collaboration is like marriage. It, first thing is you never know how it's going to work out until you try it. And the other thing is that it's not the same for any two people. Different people collaborate in different ways. My friends Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven collaborate by modem. They sit at their computers and what Jerry types out in Tarzana, California, appears on, in Studio City, appears on Larry's screen in uh, Tarzana immediately. So they're really working together. But whatever works, works. Why do you think so many science fiction writers do collaborate? <coughs> I'm glad you asked me that question because I think I know the answer to it. I think it's because science fiction, unlike most other kinds of writing, is primarily a literature of ideas. And ideas are such that you can discuss them and reach a consensus or an agreement to disagree, which is productive in terms of writing stories. There's not much point in collaborating on a Western. I mean, you know it's going to be the prospector in his burrow or the uh, cowboy and the, the, the farmer in a dispute or whatever. But uh, in terms of science fiction, if you don't have some sort of notion that nobody has ever described before, you shouldn't be writing in the first place. And to have two people discuss these ideas often makes them sharper and better. Yeah, I think you could see that. You can almost hear Purnell and Niven talking to each other in footfall. Yeah. And one is saying, well, this would happen. And I want to say, well, no, this would happen. And the plot um, yeah, it, is very it, fresh because of that kind of dialogue. Uh, I, I'll give you a personal example. When Cyril Kornbluth and I were writing The Space Merchants, um, we were trying to think of something to put in the book that would reflect the society as we um, had imagined it to be, which was to say a society of the future where resources had been strained and everybody, there were too many people and not enough of anything. And I said, well, how about if we have them live on synthetic f food? Uh, suppose they've been growing organic matter like Alexis Corral with his chicken heart that and Chicken yep. Little was born. And Cyril said, that's a great idea. So he went upstairs and he wrote the Chicken Little episode, which I had been told by a number of people is the most fun in the whole book. Uh, I suggested to Chicken Heart, he made it come to life. And that can happen in a collaboration. Some of the times, I, I, as you know, I write four pages a day. And some of those days I'm thinking, well, I'll write these four pages and I'll let Cyril take care of the next one. And if he isn't there, I have to do it myself. But you can con yourself. But I can con myself, which is essentially what writing is all about, persuading yourself to do this thing which uh, has nothing to do with hunting or gathering. You know, it's just sitting in a typewriter and playing Well, essentially, it's telling lies. It's telling lies. Yeah. And, and as you know, I'm a very truthful person. And I'm married to a, a, a person who gets paid to lie. <laughs> You've met a whole bunch of the uh, current generation of science fiction writers. What do you think of them as a class? Well, I'm very excited about um, the ideas going back and forth among them. There's some of them that I like and some of them that I don't like, but I always enjoy even the people that I, I don't approve of, you know, their, their politics or their 
their view of the way the world should be uh, is abhorrent to me. I always want the challenge of uh, testing my mind against theirs. And I suppose that's what a reader is doing all the time, reading uh, one of the truly science fiction books and not um, one of the Star Trek or, or Star Wars or Thieves' World or something where you know it's all cut and dried. Um, I read Paul McCauley's Fairyland last year, and that was the winner of the Campbell Award. And oh, that just blew me away. The the concepts that were in that, and the the um, the nuances, and uh, you know. So when I got to meet Paul McCauley and talk to him as he came to uh, Lawrence, Kansas to accept his award, it was like a dream come true. And did then you I get his autograph? No, I actually, I don't think I did. Um, but then I got to talk to him again at the Worldcon. And um, there's, there's some kind of instant friendship that bonds between a reader and a, a writer. You've experienced it when we've gone around the world. Fans come up to you and they think that you're their best friend because they know Fred Pohl. You've never met them before, but they know you. That's and, been uh, um, that's one of the great the fringe benefits of being a writer, or at least of the kind of writer I've been, because especially in places where um, free speech was discouraged, like the old Soviet Union, people would take me aside and tell me about the realities of their lives and about things they'd seen and things they thought in a way that could have got them in trouble, but they felt they knew me. They felt that I was someone... They could trust. Someone, uh, if not trust totally in every respect, at least trust as much as they would trust a friend they'd known for many years. And I cherish that. I like the idea that there are these people, I, these friends I have and don't even know I have. Well, there are different kinds of writers. Some are quite skilled in craft, but don't reveal much about themselves. And some are what I call flashers. And a flasher is sort of like a dirty old man in the park in the raincoat with nothing on underneath. And uh, the writers who will expose their naked selves to the reader are the ones that can have that impact so that years from the reading experience, um, the <coughs> reader will look back on that as a kind of a seminal experience for him. And you mentioned a while ago that uh, you thought that some stories were too hard for young people to read. Some science fiction was... Um, not entry level. Not entry level, but... Like um, Dahlgren. Right? Yeah, Dahlgren, Dahlgren's not entry level for middle-aged people. It wasn't actually. for me. I mean, I took at least a dozen tries before I could um, get past page 11. Then, of course, I couldn't put it down. And I found myself, when I went to take a nap, I remember being in Dublin and uh, going back to my room from the convention to, to rest. And I made the mistake of picking up Dahlgren, and three hours later, I'm still turning pages. <laughs> it's a remarkable book. I published it at Madam. But it's not entry level. I mean, I, you couldn't expect a 12-year-old to read that book. And I would have read it as a 12-year-old. I don't know how much of it I would have understood, but I would have read it. Well, it's even hard to understand on a liberal, literal level. But the human interactions, the kinds of 
of, um, well, it taught me an awful lot about sexuality that I didn't know. And I was, what, in my 40s when I read it? So, or at least in my late 30s, I, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it, it was a very sophisticated book. And, um, yeah, but do you remember a while ago I showed you a letter I got from a fan? Yes. He said, uh, Dear Mr. Pohl, uh, I think you would like to know that I am 18 years old, and your novel, The World at the End of the Time, uh, the End of Time, is the first book I have ever read all the way through in my entire life. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine he didn't even read Dick and Jane all the way through, but that's what he said. And the thing about The World at the End of Time is it's not only a big novel, maybe the longest I ever wrote, but it's full of all sorts of esoteric stuff about quantum physics and uh, the stellar dynamics and all sorts of odds and ends that... And all I remember from it is want to. <laughs> well, but this guy managed to get through it all the way, and he could not have been ready for it. I mean, I don't think he was ready for Buck Rogers from the way he described himself. So I don't think you can determine uh, on the basis of content or style. Perhaps you're what right. A, what a, what you're a person right. can read. Um, books can work on several levels, but there are some books that don't work on a very elementary level. That's all I'm saying. Um, that particular world at the end of time, um, Wantu is a very uh, esoteric metaphor for selfishness. Is he? Is oh, that I what I was so. doing? <laughs> I think so. The only child. Mm -hmm. And. Um, uh, maybe echoes of um, what was the memoirs of a selfish baby or I, I'm sure I don't um, know that title exactly right. You don't. I don't remember it either. But but um, it's a frequent Fred Pohl theme and perhaps one that maybe many people miss. But I loved it because I know you well. Hmm. All right, well, let's not pursue that topic any further. Well, I think it's a fairly <clears throat> universal thing, this, this whole idea of um, self-interest and selfishness and, mm. and altruism. It was a, uh, a theme that Heinlein liked to explore. I'm not sure he ever came to a, a complete uh, final stopping point on that, but he went back and forth on how altruistic people could be. and. Uh, I think it's something that is humanly, intrinsically uh, valuable about a literary experience. You know, um, literature, I think, that improves the quality of our life, that makes uh, getting through the day easier, uh, is its own justification. And on a very elementary level, um, some kinds of literature works like a kaleidoscope, and it's amusing and helps us get through our lives. But the kind that sustain us when we wake up at three in the morning and thoughts are whirling around in our head and we're wondering how we're going to cope with the next day are much more likely to be the kind where we think about the metaphor of want to rather than the kaleidoscope of dazzling colors. How many of your students, what proportion of your students do you think come to you because they want to have their lives enriched in that way? And how many are there because uh, it's a course that they can get credit for in preparation for holding a job? 
I think students come to a science fiction class with all kinds of different expectations. Some come because they think they're going to watch moon pictures. Uh -huh. And some come because um, they needed a humanities requirement and uh, they had an open time slot at the same time my class meets. Um, I get mothers who come because their teenage boys are reading science fiction. They want to know what the kid's about. I get people who come because um, they've been reading science fiction for some time and they think it's neat to get college credit for doing something they'd willingly do anyway. Um, there's just a whole range of motivation for How do you deal with a class that's made up of all these disparate kinds of students? Well, I try to take them from wherever they come from and bring them a little bit farther along in understanding the complexity of, of literature, and by that I mean the complexity of life. Uh, literature is justified as a college course because it does help us understand um, what it means to be somebody else. And science fiction can do this probably better than any other literature because we can walk in the shoes of not just the heroes, but uh, all these alien creatures that we encounter. And um, if we want to be let off the hook, we can just see it as some kind of conflict that's happening on a planet far, far away in, in another space and time. But um, Eventually, those images, those metaphors, um, are easy to relate to the world that we know, and, uh, and they enrich our lives by giving us an experience we otherwise wouldn't understand. Men can be women, women can be men, uh, whites can be black or yellow or purple or green. Um, people can can try on other kinds of existence, especially other kinds of social structures than yeah. the ones we have. I think that's why The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is such a wonderful thought experiment. There's a uh, man named Harlow Shapley who once wrote a book called The View from a Distant Star, which was not about science fiction, it was about astronomy. But I always thought that that was a great description of what science fiction was about in that respect gave you a chance to look at the world we live in from outside so that you weren't involved in, as a participant and to see just what it was that uh, about us was interesting or destructive or beneficial or worth going on with. Um, that's the thing about um, Stranger in a Strange Land. Many people like the ending of it, uh, the last half of it, where there's the sexual revolution going on. but the beginning of it is what's so exciting to me, where you have Michael Valentine Smith, who is biologically human, but he is culturally Martian. And so he comes to Earth, and he views human beings as an alien would, and is amazed at the things that we do, mm. make null sounds like please, and um, all the all the observations that he makes on our little frailties and our frivolities and so on. That's no, just that's, wonderful that's, social satire. That's the science fiction trick that uh, I guess Jonathan Swift used in Gulliver's Travels and a lot of us have used in other kinds of stories to show what's funny and odd and repulsive and even good about the human race by showing it from the eyes of somebody who is not human. View from a distant star or a distant alien. 
Well, at some other time we should pursue this question, but right now. Well, thank you. It's been nice talking to you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.